So we're here at the Limp Mansion with Stephen Walker, author and historian, to discuss his new book, Ghosts Among Us, True Stories of the Paranormal. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Tim. Oh, thank you for coming. Wanted to kind of review a little bit of the book. Um, as you state in your foreword for Ghosts Among Us, you're a steadfast believer in the immutable laws of physics. Important for all of us. <laughs> Gravity is a good thing, right? Um, and you're presenting these stories because maybe they don't fit neatly into those laws as we understand them. Do the stories that people relate to you um, expand your view on the subject at all? Or? Yes, I think very much so. And it's, it's amazing to see something like this that's at once so true and so sincerely told to me by these people that I cannot but believe what they're saying. Uh, yet, at the same time, as you said, it defies every physical law that it shouldn't exist. Ghosts shouldn't exist in the first place. So to have something like this that shouldn't be here interacting with people and sometimes frightening us, sometimes just opening our eyes to new horizons, is just a fascinating thing to see these contradictory things occur at the same time. Interesting. So when we think of ghost stories, we tend to think of them as dusty old buildings and you know those sorts of things but one of the things that really struck me about the book was that so many of them are a lot more contemporary than that the time frame is is today it's not a hundred years ago I mean these are these are individuals that people knew people you know knew about lived with has that uh, had any effect on perceptions your perceptions perceptions of people that share with you? Right, right. I agree. I was just thinking about that recently myself, that our, our perception, uh, I, I don't want to say cliche, but the typical ghost story is uh, a Hollywood version of an old Victorian house with a full moon in the background and, and bats flying out of the attic right. and dead trees outside and broken glass and shutters. That's our perception of a haunted house, if you want to look at it that way. But, but yeah, like you said, these, some of these are in my neighborhood. Somewhere in South City, you drive by these homes that have been affected by the, these paranormal experiences, they don't stand out, they don't give away any clues that this is a haunted house, while the one next door may not be. They fit right into their neighborhood. The people who experience these look like you and me. They're, they're totally reasonable people. They just have these strange occurrences and experiences that probably no one really wants to experience. <laughs> right, I, I can see. Yeah, with some of the stories, I mean, they're, they're very poignant. Some of them are, are quite poignant. And, you know, that brings an intimacy to it that is even... I mean, we all have our favorite ghost stories and uh -huh. ghosts, but but those kind of stories related to you, I'm sure, over, over years. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're very personal things for these people. And to share that, it's a vulnerable place for them to be in. I think that's a good point, and in fact, that's that's something uh, I, I keep in mind as I share these stories. That these are um, these are stories that some folks haven't told anyone else yet, mm -hmm. or if they do, they're very cautious about who they tell and what they say, um, because quite frankly, it's not everyday conversation, and we have uh, sometimes uh, a stigma attached to uh, of being affected this way. I don't want to use the word to, to, uh, to throw around the word crazy, but yeah, people think you're crazy sometimes if something like this happens. And you're the only one in the room that sees something or that has experienced something. Well, people might look askance at you. So uh, 
the, these stories first started coming to me as a result of the Lemp book, Lemp the Haunting History, my mm -hmm. first book. And it's a perfect segue to that because the stories came to me in a, the same, much the same way where when I did book signings and lectures and appearances for the Lemp book, oftentimes people would come up to me afterward when it was quiet and a lot of the crowd had dispersed. And they'd say, Mr. Walker, I'm gonna tell you something that happened in my house. Or they'd say, my grandma's house was haunted when I was growing up, when I went there and visit. And uh, they, they, I think that they can take confidence in me that I'm not gonna think they're crazy. I will think, I will be sympathetic to these stories because they, they see me as somebody who's a, a, a trustworthy person who can take their story in confidence and appreciate what they're saying. Finally, after years sometimes, they can tell these stories. And you can just see the relief in their eyes when they get to tell you the story. They can unload finally and get, get it out. Yeah, that I would imagine carrying a burden around like that. Sure. You know, when you finally are able to release that, that, that mm -hmm. it is a, a big a big relief for cathartic, yes. Yeah. And yeah, and cathartic. Um, people for whatever reason sometimes are really hesitant, especially a deeply personal story. Sure. They they're very cautious about how that's how that's shared. Yeah. So is that how it normally would unfold, sort of a furtive kind yeah. of an off to the side, hey, this happened to me? Yeah, oftentimes. In fact there is a, a story that I got through a, a mutual friend, uh, it was a story that occurred in a house up in Jennings where there was a number of children that lived there. There were 16 children altogether. Wow. They didn't all live there at the same time. Of course, the older ones were up and out before the babies came along. Sure. But the interesting thing about this is some of the children experienced apparitions. They saw sightings of ghosts, little children actually. Uh, a couple of times they saw an elderly man. But when the children went to their parents and told them what, what they had seen, the parents denied and said, no, it's all in your head. There's no such thing as ghosts. Imaginary friends. Well, right. So here's the conflict where these children, they're already confused. Some of them are six, eight, ten years old. Some are in high school. They're, they're confident that they're seeing what they're seeing. But mom said they didn't see it. Boom. There's your head-blowing uh, moment there for, right. for you. So it, it adds to the conflict by being told that they didn't see what they just saw. So when we finally got together with these folks, uh, one of the siblings gathered up. There were two that are deceased, but the survivors all get together. And we met one day at her house. And believe it or not, that was the first time some of them had gotten to hear the other siblings' stories because they were so beaten down and told that this wasn't, it was in their head, it was their imagination, that they were as fascinated as I was when I put my microphone down and taped these stories. The, a hush fell over the room. They all listened in and said, that I, I had the same thing happen to me. Cool. And they finally got to relate these stories. It was like a totally unburdening situation. And how, you know, what a corroboration of, of what they experienced right. that they hadn't discussed that over those years, right. and yet, you know, they could relate to that story or that experience at least. Mm -hmm. That's really like, sort of, to me, the, the heart of... of you know why we gather to tell uh -huh. these stories yeah. right the victorian mansion the bats uh -huh. the scary story yeah. but so many of them aren't necessarily scary stories they're just unusual occurrences right. that don't fit neatly into that you know laws of physics sure. mode one of my taglines when i when i do my little posters and flyers and and sheets I, I, it, it occurred to me that these stories range from the tame to the terrifying. 
and it really is true. There are some stories that, I mean, if you have to have a ghost story happen to you, have the ones where the ghost turns the lights off for you. Okay, that's okay. I can handle that. The, the helpful ghost? Right, the helpful <laughs> ghost that doesn't like to waste electricity. Mm -hmm. But you don't want the ghosts that cause physical harm. I mean, it ranges from that to physical harm. There are actual documented stories of, of people being harmed uh, physically. And that's a very rare thing. Usually we're taught that things that go bump in the night are, are just noises and uh, it's grandma's ghost. That's why the rocking chair is rocking. Or you might see an apparition walk through a wall, all those Disney-esque sorts of mm -hmm. things. But we're usually taught that they cannot harm us, and it's generally true. There are very few cases of a spirit or an apparition interacting in such a way that it harms a person. But this, there are, there are a couple stories in the book that actually result in physical trauma. Fascinating. While that is rare, you know, it does mm -hmm. happen. I mean, whether it's if you want to be the skeptic and it's a, a self-inflicted type thing or not uh, that can happen can and does happen uh, so it's important to it happens know. just often enough that you don't know if it's going to be you or not <laughs> well, that's a you little know, unsettling that's right? one, isn't it? it it makes me think of this the rides of six flags they're all pretty safe but every once a but year, every once in a while you hear the story happen. right and that's what makes it so thrilling to survive it and get off mm -hmm. yeah right well that's true i mean that's what people find, I think a lot of people anyway, find so fascinating about the whole subject. Mm -hmm. You know, that could be me. This is us, exactly. That's, that's the analogy I make because we're getting a peek behind the curtain. We're seeing what's behind in the afterlife. We're seeing what's on the other side there. We all want to, that's why we go to scary movies. Because we want to be scared out of our wits, but we want to walk out intact. Yeah, scared but safe, it, right? Yeah, right. We want to leave it behind us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But here... Same thing, we're fascinated with hearing other people's stories even though we may not want to experience it ourselves. Right. You know, the other thing that, that struck me about some of the stories, there's the, the traditional sort of ghost story line, plot line, as if you will. But in your book, I mean, you do recount some circumstances that sort of border on, on the metaphysical astral projection type things, not strictly the, the traditional ghost story storyline. With all the societal awareness of those sorts of things, astral projection, that sort of thing, do you think that that changes how people relate their stories to you? Do they filter through things that they've heard or learned about those things? Or when they tell you the story, do they tend to just give you sort of raw data? Right, that's a good point. They, they generally do. Um, and that's what I find fascinating about these stories. And it's also what, the way I can tell that they're telling me the truth. Because most of these folks did not tell me these stories with any hint that it's going to be published in a book. Mm -hmm. I didn't say, hey, I'm going to publish a book of stories. Will you make up a story for me? <laughs> no, they didn't. And I could tell the, the, the uh, ghosts I was just describing in Jennings. The people that told those stories, there were a couple in particular, 50 years later, they're still tearing up, and get, I could see the goosebumps on their arms. Mm. I could see the emotion in their face. They're still essentially traumatized by this to some extent. These are true, sincere people telling me these stories, and that's why I appreciate them so much, mm -hmm. because they're really going out on a limb, and they're reliving some trauma that they've had to suppress for many years in some cases. Right. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what makes this so, so amazing, is it's such a variety of stories, and they come, like I said, from every man. It's our neighbor. It's our brother, it's our coworker. 
they're, they're everywhere. <laughs> and they, they, they're out there. Right. I think that people, people that have experienced that level of, of trauma, well, whether, they, whether they interpret it as, as ghost or not, the reality for them is that they still have those emotions and those feelings mm -hmm. that they kind of go at. Is there a, a particular passage, that anything that you care to read for us from the book? Uh, yeah, maybe. Well, one of the stories that I, I think had the, some of the most impact on me and a lot of the other readers have commented to me, it's the story called The Man in the Black Hat. And it, it involves a, a, a man who this woman, she's now in her 80s, I met her in Mount Olive, Illinois, and uh, she had an experience as about a seven-year-old child where she had trouble falling asleep and this man came up the stairs into her room that she shared with other siblings. The other girls were asleep, but she couldn't sleep for some reason. When she heard the person coming up the stairs, she thought it was her mother. So she was glad because she wanted to ask her mother if I can get up and play now. I'm not sleepy. I want to get up. Well, instead it was this man she'd never seen before. He has got to the top of the stairs. He stood there with his hands in his pocket. He's wearing an overcoat, a black hat, and uh, just like an expressionless, feelingless face. And he, he scanned the room and he saw her. They came walking over toward her. And with every step, she got a little bit more agitated, as you might imagine. <laughs> so anyway, um, he stood by her bed. He made it to her bed. And... Um, the thing that was scary about this is that everyone who lived in that house before them, every family lost a child while they lived in that house. A child died. So she immediately remembered that story. I thought, oh my, it's my turn. So here's the man standing there just eyeing her up, and she's hiding under the blanket. She comes back out, looks, she's still there. She did this a couple times. So the man is standing there staring at her deeply into her eyes, a very hostile look until he just finally turns around and, and walked away. He walked out of the room. Well, that was traumatic enough. But decades later, her grandfather was in the hospital with a terminal illness. He was dying. She went to encourage him with a hospital visit, and here's what she said. She comes into the room, to the grandpa's room. She says, you're going to be okay, she said. No, I'm not, he responded, shaking his head. He then told Gail about a sinister man who came to him the previous night. The man was wearing a tan trench coat and a black hat. He also carried a white cane. Gail knew this had to be the same man who visited her years before, and her body ached from the sudden shock of recognition that went through her when she heard her grandfather talk about the shadowy figure. According to her grandfather, the man delivered a dreadful message. I've got two of your sons, he said grimly, and now I want you. Gail knew the man was right about the two sons. Her father passed away in the 1950s, and his brother, who died before she was born, was struck and killed by a streetcar while playing on the tracks when he was three years old. Though her grandfather was very weak, he told Gail that he, was, that he resisted the man. I don't want to die, he told him. I'm not ready to go. The man spoke again, saying, it's a far better place you're going to than where you are now. Within three days of the man's pronouncement, Gail's grandfather was dead. The old house where Gail was visited by the man in the black hat burned to the ground long ago, and she finds some comfort in the fact that she'll never again hear him come up that creaky old staircase. Nonetheless, she is certain he will come back to her life at least one more time. She said, I'm convinced that he'll return someday, and when he does, I'll be going with him. So I think he was death. I think he was a, the personification of death, and he come, came to do his duty once, and he's going to come back. She's convinced she'll see him again. It's fascinating how, 
how that same that same imagery for both of them. Mm -hmm. So it does it does beg question: How is that possible? Exactly. Um, you know, so many years apart, mm -hmm. and the same imagery for that experience. And that's what's convincing to me. That's when I when I hear there's another story that a coworker of mine uh, told me, and it involves her two daughters, and um, they saw the same apparition years apart in different parts of the house when they were little. <laughs> so they, it's not like they got together and said, let's fool mom and tell her this elaborate story. But mom heard this on the baby monitor. She heard the children squabbling and arguing with, with somebody in their room. And uh, she ran upstairs to see what was going on and there was nothing there. But on both occasions, again, years apart, the girls complained and described this boy with a hole in his head or a head injury. And they kept going, ooh, mommy, pointing to their head. And um, she talked this over with her husband, realized it just came to him that when he was younger, he had a, a friend when they were about 12 or 13 years old, they hung out together, these three boys had always gotten into trouble together. And one of the boys accidentally shot his friend in the head. Huh. So there is what they think may be a very good clue as to who this person is mm -hmm. still hanging around their house. And that's that's in the book as as the Browns bad boy. Uh -huh, exactly. Right. Yeah, okay. I really enjoyed you know what I was able to read there, is fascinating, and I think that it's been it's been taken up by all of the ghost hunters and that mm -hmm. sort of thing, but I mean these stories do go back uh, into earliest communication of of humans. Oh yeah. Over the years, you know, as society changes, perceptions change. You know, spiritual, modern spiritualism really came to fore in the 1850s um, with the whole events with the Fox Girls, that sort of thing. But in that time frame, I mean, there were deaths from disease, from war, from medical treatment that was rudimentary at best if it existed at all. Right. Do you think that as far as, as modern spiritualism goes, how do you think that plays into or does it play into sort of the consciousness overall of people today. Right, well yeah, you, you mentioned spiritualism. I mean, that did peak in the Victorian age, and I guess partly because death was such a part of our daily life. Uh, children, half your children died before adulthood. Just terribly common, as you said. Medical treatment wasn't what it was. Certain things we could tr treat with antibiotics today took children and adults alike. Mm -hmm. So I think the pervasive nature of death, the, the grim nature that they had to deal with every day back then, focus them on death and focus them on reuniting with their loved ones to deny death. I think that's the whole idea of spiritualism is to deny that that wall exists and that we can bring grandma back anytime we want or we can go visit grandma or our children. Right. There, there is no death, there are no dead. Right. It's right. right, so I think that's when this all began. It began as parlor games. Look at the Ouija board. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's the, that's the height of that, the seances and the Ouija boards that developed during that time and now they still exist. We still play with Ouija boards. And there are two stories in the book that teach us not to play with Ouija boards. You'll see when you read these stories, I mean, it's, uh, it starts, always starts off as fun and games, but there are often residual effects. And uh, we learned a couple lessons in the book here, uh, as you'll see later on, uh, that it's not a toy. It's really not, I don't know how it works. I honestly don't know why it would work any more than I know why ghosts would exist in the first place. They shouldn't be here. And this little toy, this little board with a planchette that you put your fingers on, shouldn't connect to the other world. 
but boy, it's sure some evidence out there that it does. And so there's modern day spiritualism, whether it's a hangover from the old days or whether it's still a resurgence, I think it's just a part of human nature. I think we just want to connect to the other side, as I mentioned before, we all want to peek behind that curtain. We want to stay solidly on our side, but like going to the scary movie and the roller coaster, we want to be titillated, we want to be frightened, we want our adrenaline to, to flow and our, our heart to pound, yeah. but boy, it's sure nice to close that curtain again. <laughs> you know, no one wants to live over there. We want to look behind. We visit cemeteries, we go to horror movies. Now October's here, Halloween's coming. We celebrate that and enjoy it. It's fun on one level, but boy, there's something beneath the surface that's a little scary. Mm -hmm. But we just want to look at it. And I, I've always qualified that I myself am not a ghost hunter. I'm not a ghost buster. I'm not the guy who you're going to call. You know? <laughs> um, but I'm an appreciator. I think I would call myself an archivist or a, a gatherer of stories. Because um, while I haven't had the good fortune or misfortune, as you, whichever way you want to look at it, of encountering a, a spiritual entity myself, I really do deeply believe that the people I've talked to have. And I appreciate their stories, and I appreciate them coming toward, to me with those stories. But I, I'm not the ghostbuster, ghost hunting guy. I, I like the guys that do that. I'm glad there's someone doing that. But I'm like, like you said earlier, I, I sit back and marvel at this, the fact that something that shouldn't exist is still so pervasive in our lives, and you can touch on it. Everyone knows someone who has a ghost story. Um, so I appreciate these stories and I enjoy hearing them. I enjoy chronicling them. I collect them. And this book represents the best of my collection over about 25 year history. Mm -hmm. So I've gotten to hone down the, the good stories and, and present those. And when I do this, I try not to take um, just the straight story that people give me because some of them are, are good enough on their own, the bare bones story that certain things happened to you in the first place and you live to tell about it. <laughs> That's amazing in itself. But what I try to do is rather than just dryly tell the story again, I'll say like, Fred told me he saw this ghost and here's what happened. But I try to get in Fred's head and I try to say, how did he feel? I try to convey to the reader how it felt to encounter the, I try, <clears throat> I try to convey to people how it felt when the recipient of this story, the participant, saw this happen. How did they make you feel? I mean, sure it was frightening to see, I'm sure, but when you hear them tell it live to you, I want to try to convey the same sense of foreboding, the same ominous tone, and put the reader in, just like making it into a movie. Mm -hmm. I try to go beyond just giving the straight story and the words and try to emote a little bit and show how it must have felt to be there. And that is what makes a story worth telling. I think so. Is, is not only the story itself, but how that story makes the reader feel and react, because that's at the end, that's really all we have, is our emotions and our reactions mm -hmm. to things. Yeah. And I find that, you know, I find that part of it, sort of the self-examination that can go on. Because as you said, a lot of people have had those, had similar, maybe not similar experiences, but some sort of experience. And maybe it's, it's safety in numbers. I'm not mm -hmm. the only one. And I think that your work brings that out very clearly on several levels. You know, I found it to be fascinating, and really, the contemporary aspects of it, I really appreciated the freshness of that approach. Uh, I think that, you know, I think that so many people, you know, they get locked into that Hollywood mindset a lot of times, mm -hmm. and it's, um, 
it's refreshing to find, you know, to see that it's, you know, it's not all smoke and mirrors necessarily, yeah. that, that it's today as well as, as in the past. And that's what I find fascinating, as we, as we touched on earlier, it's, it's the house next door. There's one of these that occurs about a mile from my house. I live in O'Fallon, Missouri. <laughs> Nondescript, there's no Victorian, Queen Anne, four boarding houses there. Uh, they look like every other tract house, but some of them have a, a deep, dark secret in there. Uh, some of them are, uh, some of the stories are, uh, like I said before, lights turn on and off on their own. Um, there's voices, there's the old footsteps in the attic when no one's up there. Uh, I've heard all those stories. I've heard, and that's one thing that I enjoyed about this is gathering the stories because there's such a variety. There's not, there, there's, you're not going to look at this and say, oh gosh, all those stories are about the same thing. No, they're not. They're, there's only... I mean, sure, there's two Ouija board stories, but they're still separate, distinct stories mm -hmm. and very informative and very teachable moments there. Uh, but there's, uh, as I said before, the ghost that turns the lights out because he doesn't, in life, this man didn't like wasting electricity. He lectured his kids, so he turned the lights out when they, got, when they left the room. The woman who lives there experiences this to this day. In fact, she loves her ghost. This, this occurs in New Orleans. A very mystical city, anyway, with the voodoo and the the religious overtones and the, the spiritualism. But she lives outside New Orleans, and she loves her ghost. She he's such a part of her household that she's afraid of him ever leaving. They did some remodeling on their house. It took a couple years that they were out of the house, and she was the main thing she was afraid of is that her ghost would leave because of all the disturbance, all the dust and disturbing. That does, sometimes does stir up spirits when you do remodeling in a house. So her, her biggest fear was when they got back, all the noise and destruction would disrupt her spirit. But when she got back, part of the remodel effort was her kitchen. And they put a new oven in. It was a double oven. And she was baking in below the, the down portion oven. And she was just thinking about her ghost, who she gives her name, Mr. Bernard. That, that's actually his name that lived there. She's thinking about Mr. Bernard and wondering if he's if he's still there. She was wondering that, the light came on in the oven upstairs, the upper oven. She said she didn't even know where that light was to turn it on herself. So um, she said, oh, thank goodness he's still here. In fact, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the one remedy for, for ghosts, uh, I guess to rid yourself of ghosts, is to burn sage. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's an old wives' tale, I've heard of it working. There's a story in here that it does, it does help in one of these houses, but um, the, the woman who told the story said when a recipe calls for sage, she'll leave it out. She doesn't even want sage in the house. She doesn't want to scare her ghost away. So she's so, so loyal to this ghost and him to her that she's kind of had, they have a symbiotic relationship. And uh, she just takes delight in him being there. That's the only story I've come across like that. Most people are either very, very afraid or very afraid of their ghost. <laughs> They, they don't want too much to do with it. Uh, a lot of folks want to get rid of it. Whether they can or not is another story sometimes. Well, I find it interesting uh, several times in talking about the stories. Um, you know, it's the house next door, that sort of thing. I mean, right now we're sitting in the office of the Lint Mansion, um, and so much of, of that side of the mansion and the story is pinned to the place, the, the history of the place, the, the things that have happened in the past. But in some of these examples, you know, these houses aren't that old. Sure. You know, those types of events, I mean, here there were suicides, 
haven't had time to occur in those places, but yet people still have the experiences that they have. And I find that another part of, of the puzzle, which makes it even more of a puzzle, mm-hmm. you know, it, it goes against that traditional storyline ghost story. You know, this is a, a house like any other house. There are the, um, you know, the poltergeist interpretation of, well, it was built on a cemetery kind of thing. Sure. But not every house is built on a cemetery, and yet these things still happen. Right, that's a good point. Now, there are different theories as to why ghosts might exist. And here in the Lent Mansion, as, as we're seated, it's a typical storyline where a sudden violent death often does uh, result in a residual energy or a ghost. Some of these other stories, though, when I look at the, the, the book here, I'm reminded of stories that, uh, like the, the Brown's Bad Boy, that house was two years old, newly built house when these things started occurring. So there are theories as to whether the ghosts follow the person, because I've had people that have had a haunted house and they've moved, and they have another haunted house. <laughs> so is it them, or is it the property? And the, ho- the house in question here, one of the houses, had Victorian apparitions, a woman and a, about a 10-year-old boy that occupied this house. They'd show up about 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning on the second floor loft, where a little 10-year-old girl would look outside and see them, standing between her parents' room and her room in the loft, not moving, but just looking at her, looking through her essentially. But she gave a very vivid description of their clothing and chronicled this in a log for several nights. She kept her wits about her and actually chronicled that. I mean, how many kids can do that? Right. How many adults could or would do that? <laughs> could you or just would. want to <laughs> close, put the cover over your head and close the door and forget it even happened. But yeah, there's another case. Did the, was that property haunted already? The house is not a Victorian house. The house is a typical O'Fallon house, maybe eight or 10 years old. Not a lot of Victorians lived in O'Fallon in the past decade. <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah, so there's a, another case. So it, there are various theories as to how this happens, why this happens. Sometimes the theories are that the person is the haunted. It's not the ghost, but it's the person. There are, some people really do claim there are no haunted houses. There are only haunted people. But I, I'm not convinced that's true because of the, the evidence that I've gathered. Again, the, the Brown's bad boy. He's very much a living manifestation of what happened in this man's childhood. I think it's way beyond coincidence that the two girls saw a boy with a head wound in this house. Mm-hmm. There's no reason for that. So it's, it's a very dynamic situation. This isn't some, you know, there's one type of haunting where, of course, we all fear and know about intelligent hauntings where this ghost might stalk you or follow you up the stairs or interact with you in a very real-time situation. But there are other phenomena that occur where it's sometimes called psychic echoes, where the theory there is that the, the locale, the venue, is actually acting as a, more or less a movie screen replaying an event that happened years ago. A lot of hauntings in Gettysburg happen this way. People go on the Gettysburg battlefield, and some of those reenactments have been so so vivid that tourists have thought it, it's actually set up. They see horses, they see a battle going on, but none of that happened. None of that happened before their very eyes. It happened in the Civil War. Wow. So the same thing can happen in these houses where that type of haunting is is just... It's not an interactive thing. It's not actually grandma rocking that chair again. She's not there. It's just that event that happened 
an echo decades of or a century ago. Exactly, it just recurs. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything? I mean, St. Louis is such a rich history of period, just history. Is there anything, ghost-wise, or just from a historical perspective, that that a lot of people don't know, or that you feel like maybe they should? Well, you know, there's. Um, these, these stories are not what I consider the old war horses of St. Louis. There are a lot of those. There's the Exorcist, of course, the Lent Mansion stories, which uh, I've chronicled up and down, sideways and backwards. Mm -hmm. um, those are well known. There are a lot of other stories that are well known, a lot of hauntings at Washington University. I think it's their library that has uh, some events happen. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things, and around this time of year, there's a lot of newspaper articles and TV shows that, that chronicle some of these things and, and bring them out again and again. But um, one thing I was surprised to, to find as I was doing the research for this is right next door, the Dimonell House. It, it looks certainly looks like it should be haunted, doesn't it? <laughs> it has that appearance. It's got that appearance. It's yeah. got the everything about it that should indicate that it's it's been there long enough, goodness knows. Um, but yeah, that, that's one of those things I've often looked at that when I come to the mansion. I look at that house and go, wonder, I wonder what happened there. Who lived there? What must have occurred? I mean, that, the house predates this house. It predates a lot of St. Louis. And it was finally when I met some of their volunteers that worked there and, and did tours, and they told me some of the amazing hair-raising things that happened on those tours sometimes. Now, the Dimonell management doesn't really play up the ghost stories. The, the Lent Mansion recognizes it as part of their, the fabric of their being. Mm -hmm. They like it or not, they have it. They don't deny it, I think they celebrate it. I don't know why you shouldn't, I don't know why you wouldn't, uh, because it's such a notable part of your, your past, it's so interwoven. The Demonels are a little more, uh, their management's a little more disavowal of that, I guess if that's the right word, they disavow or don't encourage discussion of that type of, of activity. I don't think they want to be seen as a quote, haunted house, but just because you don't want to be seen that way doesn't mean something isn't happening. You just can't deny it. <laughs> right. And these stories, this isn't just one person who decides to go outside the norm and just say, I'm going to make up a story. And tell them. These are stories that I've heard from independent witnesses. Some of them have seen the same thing occur. Uh, others, in fact, we had dinner one night. They, they invited me over. About three or four of these volunteers got together and invited me over. And I recorded their stories. Sometimes they'd hear a story from one of them that would remind them of, oh yeah, that, that reminds me that happened to me too. Oh, it's something like that happened to me on the third floor. Oh, that happened to me, and now that I remember, so it's really kind of good to get these people together and encourage this sort of discussion. You, you bring things out of people that they forgot they had seen. And it's not like they're making it up, they're just remembering, uh, having on to these memories, exactly. So it's fascinating, it's nothing, it's nothing harmful. These aren't the stories that I was referring to earlier where there's physical harm inflicted on somebody. But they're just definitely stories that have occurred. I really feel sincerely that they have occurred. These people would get me together just to make up a story. I'm convinced of that. It's too much trouble. Um, but, you know, it's just, uh, it's just one of those uh, undiscovered treasures, I guess. If you're looking for haunted venues, look no further than this block because there are some things out there. There are some things that happen right next door. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say I really appreciate the, the research and the years of work that went into collecting those stories. I'm sure you have hundreds more uh, that weren't in the book. I mean, I found it to be, you know, a very fascinating take, and it, it made me think about your forward, really, talking about the laws of physics. It really did make me stop and think about how all of these things fit into the 
the bigger picture, as you will. Mm-hmm. So, and that brings up that's my philosophy. That's why I gave the introduction as much thought as I did any of these stories, because I, I thought that partly for myself, I wanted to collect my thoughts and and give the world a reason as to why I'm doing this. I didn't just haphazardly put these stories together. Uh, they've just been aching to be brought into the light. And I, and I think that's that's what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to show people the fascinating world that exists right out of our sight. <laughs> it's, it's right next to you. You don't even know it, but it's there. Right behind the veil. Right. And, uh, and I liken this whole thing to this, my study of astronomy. I'm not... I'm I'm not an astronomer. I'm an astronomy buff. I guess I enjoy it. I I enjoy going out and looking at the night sky. And it occurred to me as I was writing this that that's very much the same philosophy as these ghosts. We may never understand it, but we can sure look at it and appreciate it. Same way with looking at the stars at night. We may never understand how it all works or how it all came together, but that doesn't stop, stop you from going out there on a night, a still cool night, looking outside at the stars and just looking at it and meditating on it. I'm thinking about the wondrous things that you're seeing. It's just as marvelous, just the same thing as, as the peek behind the curtain. Well, I, I want to thank you for your time. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us today. And I highly recommend Ghosts Among Us. I know your book signing is coming up on the 16th of October. I understand the delivery is going to be rather interesting. So sure, you want to hear about it? Yeah, I'd love to. Sure, well, I, I have some eccentric friends. I guess when you get into this kind of business, you, you meet folks that are interested in things that not everyone else is interested in. And one of those friends has a, a couple of caskets. And one's an old, uh, an antique 1860s casket. It's a, it's a small, it's actually a child's casket. It's about four feet long and eight inches deep. And I've got other people who have hearses, believe it or not. So when you think about a grand delivery of books, ghost story books to a haunted house, what better way than to put them in the casket and put the casket into the hearse and pull up at 1, a. 1 p.m. in a dramatic fashion to uh, deliver them. We'll have pallbearers. We'll have two guys that come out and deliver them somberly through the sidewalk around the uh, outside of the, the building, probably come in the side entrance. And uh, hopefully we'll have a nice crowd gathered there. It'll be a visual spectacle and a memorable way to start a memorable event. That sounds like a <laughs> fun time for everyone. Sure. All right. Well, thank you for coming. I encourage everyone to get out there and take a look. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Stephen. Sure.